Okay, here we go. We're in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, if you're a parent, you know that you've used this verse to the point where your Bible falls open to this passage when your kids are around. It just happens that way. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Probably if you're a parent and you've been using this verse, you know it in like five or six different translations. Whatever kind of suits the needs just right at the time. And it's an interesting study. We'll look at those words in just a little bit. But they won't be for your kids. They'll be for us today. Why do everything without grumbling or arguing? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now, what's interesting is that he's talking to people that are already children of God. But he's describing what kind of children of God that they will become. And if you are already in Christ and it, the Holy Spirit has brought you to new life, you've repented, the scales have fallen from your eyes, God has intervened in your life to that degree, that's who you are. You are a child of God, but you may not actually be blameless and pure as a child of God just yet, nor were the Philippians. And as great as they were and as encouraging as they were to Paul, I mean, they were his like chummy church. They were the ones that supported him at every turn. They were the ones that amazed him that despite incredible persecution that was bearing down on them and horrible poverty, that they were the most generous, the most joyful of the folks that they could encounter. And despite all that, he's still saying to them, children of God, you want to make sure that all this grumbling and complaining stuff is out of there because you need to really become all the more blameless and pure because of the backdrop of the generation with which God has placed you. Amen. Children without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them, that is among your generation, like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. That word holding firmly there is a word that Paul uses that has, I think, on purpose, a bit of a, a double meaning. If, if you're a bit of an old school fellow or gal and you've got a King James Bible with you, you know that there it says, as you hold forth the word of God. That is, as you present forth, as you proffer the word of God to a, a generation that needs to be able to hear it. But I think Paul is being clever here. Because the word that he chooses just as easily could mean, you know what, hold on tight to this word of God as it's applied to your life so that you can shine like stars, so that you can be blameless and pure, so that you can be distinctive versus the backdrop of the society where God has placed you. But the way that's going to happen, hold fast to the word of God and you will be a, a discerning difference. But at the same time, if you're going to be this light that shines to this generation, you are also at the same time presenting the word of God at all times. So I love the way that Paul used so much of his rhetorical cleverness throughout this letter, but definitely right here as, as he does that. So anyway, moving on. As you hold firmly or as you hold forth the word of life, and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. Paul's not using mixed metaphors here, like first I'm an athlete, now I'm a bricklayer. Um, the word labor was actually the word that you would use when you were going into intense training for some sort of a, 
uh, Olympic game or an Ismithian game. Ismithian game. You try and say that yourself. Uh, but, but, but these were the big Olympic type events that were going on in this area. Paul had seen them in Ephesus. He had seen them in Corinth. I probably didn't see the Olympic Games, but he did see the other biggest games in the area. And he saw the diligence and the discipline that went into training for such a contest as that. And so Paul, speaking of the intensity of the athletes that he saw as they labored and ran with all that they had, describes his own ministry to the Philippians in that same way. I mean, I, I left it all on the field for you guys. And you know what? It wasn't for nothing. Check you out. Look at you now. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. It's an interesting phrase, and it's not just kind of a Jewish type phrase of making offerings in the temple. You make an offering of, of a, perhaps some sort of a lamb without blemish or, or fault. And often it would be accompanied even with a drink offering, with, with some sort of libation or wine that would be poured out in addition to the sacrifice. Now, Greeks did the same thing. It, we're we're in, a, in a Greek area, Macedonia here. Uh, a lot of the Romans took up the Greek practices. So this would not have been a foreign idea to anybody hearing it, whether they come from kind of a secular Greek-Roman background or whether they were Jews that had made their way into, into Jesus. But, but either way, they would have understood that. But here's the interesting part. As lofty as Paul holds up the Philippian church, as much as he really loves them, he says to them, you're the main event. You're the sacrifice. Your service, that in this little picture that I'm painting here, you are the, the main sacrifice that everybody marvels at. You know what I am? I'm just the, the, the glass of wine that they pour on it after the fact. But you know what? You guys are all that, that, that I'm, I'm here for. And then he ends it with, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And, and, and Paul, again and again, I mean, he's in chains writing this. He may be heading towards his own death, which is why he's saying I'm being poured out like an offering. It may be that he's even referring to the imminent death that could be coming his way for the sake of preaching the gospel. And he's talking to an oppressed church here too. But I love the way that despite all of that, I don't want you to complain about anything. And I'm not going to complain about anything. And I'm not going to argue either about any of these things. And nor should you. And in the end, strip away the entitlement. Just enjoy all that we have in Christ. Look forward to where it is that we're all heading. And have joy and rejoice. Because I'm doing it for you. You should have it for yourselves. And even if I'm about to, to, to be slaughtered for the sake of Jesus. You know what? Have it for me as well. My goodness, right? Mindset shift deluxe that we're given here. And I want to take a look at the two big things, though, that I think that Paul is presenting to them. One is he's saying, here is the backdrop of where you live and who you are amongst. And secondly, given that, this is who you are to them. And so two points today. The first one is, maybe there's three. I'll see as we go. Uh, my first point is what Paul paints as the backdrop here is a warped and perverse darkness. That is the canvas on which he is now painting this beautiful picture of God's people. But what is this backdrop of the canvas? A warped and perverse generation. A crooked and perverse generation. A warped and diseased generation, depending on the translation that you have here. 
the, the, the words all have to do with perversion and twisting that goes on. One of the Greek words is scolios, you know, where we get scoliosis. I remember when I was in second grade, you know, they bring you all in for the screenings and they take you into the back. And for, for us, let's see, second grade, I don't know. I think we made it into the 70s at this point. We're not in the 60s, but or early 70s. But they bring us back, and I remember they shine a light behind us all onto a wall, and there's grids on the wall, and, and based on our silhouettes, they tell us whether we have any sort of scoliosis or not of the spine. And you know, I'm kind of full of myself then, a little bit now, maybe still more now. But, but anyway, I, I walk back then, and, and I go back there, and say, oh, I got this. Right? And, you know, I kind of try to stand there as straight as I can, and, you know, and they write on my thing, curvature of the spine. I'm like, no, I, how dare you? How dare you say that I have any sort of a defect? Do this again. Let me, let me try the test again. And, you know, no matter how many times it was. And, you know, it, it, it's just so classic, right? That, that we don't even realize the, the twistings that are ours. Because you just grow accustomed to them. And, you know, and for me, I'm, I'm ready to complain and argue endlessly, you know, with the screeners at this event. I, I mean, it never ended. I remember going home and saying, can we make an appeal? Uh, this is not me. And, and then I remember my mom saying, here, look in the mirror. Do you see how much lower your right shoulder is than your, than your left shoulder there? Do you think that's just because, you know, that's the way you carry your golf clubs? Or I guess I didn't play golf in second grade. But, <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, it took so much convincing. But I think that's the, that's the way of, of anything that's crooked and twisted. You just kind of go with the flow after a while, and you get used to it. Now, here is some things that are mind-blowing, that are, are kind of a little bit of uh, fun facts. They're not fun facts. They are, are, are really kind of uh, terrible facts. Uh, kind of different snapshots from Gallup, Pew Research, Barna, that, that have looked at a few things. Let me, let me just kind of rattle off some of these for your... Uh, kind of eye-opening pleasure here. Approximately one-third, again, this is a description of our generation, as we have it right here, one-third of the entire population of the United States, 110 million people, currently have a sexually transmitted disease, according to the CDC. That's half of all adults, one-third of the entire population. And every single year, there are 20 million more new STDs in America, cases. America has the highest STD infection rate in the entire industrialized world. According to one survey, 24% of all U.S. teens that have STDs say that they still have unprotected sex. The United States has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the entire industrialized world, by far. According to a study conducted by the CDC and Prevention, Approximately two-thirds of all Americans in the 15 to 24-year-old age bracket have engaged in oral sex. And at that same age, as a teenager, one of every four teen girls in the U.S. has at least one sexually transmitted disease. In the U.S. right now, there are 747,408 registered sex offenders. 18% of all women in the United States say they have been raped at some point in their lives. Teens that are in the 16 to 19 year old age bracket are three and a half times more likely than the general population to be victims of rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault. 60% of male abuse victims and 80% of female sex abuse victims are abused by someone known to the child or the child's family. 
It's estimated that one of every four girls will be sexually abused before they become adults. An astounding 30%, it's actually higher than that in, in, in a more recent update, but, but over 30% of all internet traffic goes to adult pornographic websites. 70% of all men in the 18 to 24 year old age bracket visit at least one adult website every month. The average high school boy spends two hours every single week on pornographic websites. One survey discovered that 25% of all employees that have internet access in America visit sex websites while they are at work. For women under the age of 30 in the United States, more than half of all babies are being born out of wedlock. You let that register. Half of all babies born out of wedlock. At this point, one right now of the overall population, one of every three children in the United States lives in a home without a father. Since the passage of Roe v. Wade, 56 million babies have been aborted. Today's 9-11, 3,000 Americans lost their lives as a result of that, that tragedy and, and that um, devastation of terrorism. Every single day in the U.S., 3,000 babies or more are aborted. Every day. Most women that get abortions in the U.S. claim to be Christian. Matter of fact, in, in uh, the, the, all Catholics make up 27% of all women who get abortions, and Protestants make up 42% of all women that get abortions. So just between those two, that's, that's almost 70% of, of all abortions are by those who profess to be Christians. The number of sexual assaults in the U.S. military is at an all-time high currently. The majority of those are male-on-male. During 2012, more than 85,000 military veterans were, just in that one year, were formally treated for sexual abuse that they suffered while serving in the U.S. military. The number of active members in the U.S. military that kill themselves each year now exceeds the number that are dying on the battlefield. And you've seen this kind of popular movement to support this cause uh, with 22 push-ups, but it says, according to one study, where they, they had to extrapolate, 22 military veterans kill themselves in the United States every single day. With each of these things that I read, appreciate the darkness. America has the highest incarceration rate, it's people in jail, and the largest total prison population in the entire world by far. Like as they cite some of these surveys, like it's not even worth like giving you the, the, the dimensions. By far. In America today, there are 60 million people that abuse alcohol, 22 million people that use illegal drugs. Incredibly, more than 11% of all Americans that are 12 years of age or older admit that they have driven home under the influence of alcohol at least once in the last year. America has the highest rate you know, per, per, per population of illegal drug use on the entire planet by far. Of the major industrialized nations, America is the most obese. Mexico's number two. The average young American will spend 10,000 hours playing video games before the age of 21. At this point, 15-year-olds that attend U.S. public schools do not rank even in the top half 
of all industrialized nations when it comes to math or science literacy. In a study conducted by the Barna Group discovered that nearly 60% of all Christians from 15 years of age to 29 years of age are no longer active at all in any church. That's our trends, and they're only going faster and faster into a direction of darkness. And it would be terrific to be able to say, but oh, at least there are so many Christians in the U.S., these bright and shining lights that shine among, like, like stars among the universe. But sadly, that's not an easy claim to be able to make. And while Paul can say that about the Philippian church, if he were to write a letter to America with all those professing not just to be, let's just call it, you know, CEO Christians, that doesn't mean that you're the head of your company, Christmas, Easter only uh, Christians, but, but, if, but if you were to write a letter to the most committed of all Christians, we have a lot of polling data on that. Christians who kind of meet a bunch of filters, like they've, they've been born again, they have personal relationship with the Lord, they believe in the Bible, they believe in hell, they believe in heaven, all of those things. And, and even from all of that, oh my goodness, what is the state of the darkness that is all around us with, with the great majority of people professing Christianity? So, for example, with racism, and, and look at what we're facing right now as a, as a nation with all of the tension that is going on, only escalating, really, with every single day right now. But you think, well, but maybe Christians can bring it together. I mean, here it is, praise God. But in a, in a, a Gallup survey, George Gallup and James Castelli did, did a survey, and they asked which groups of people in the United States were the least likely to object to having black neighbors. And then they looked at the percentage of each group, and they, you know, it was Catholics, Jews, etc. Uh, what of those groups would object to having black neighbors? The, the group that uh, least objected, by the way, were Jews. The next group were Catholics at 11%. Mainline Protestants, 16%. And then the two highest groups that would object, and these are, are, are a survey of white people, the, the two largest groups that object if they were to have a black neighbor move in were evangelicals and, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, I'm just reading the survey, and Southern Baptists. Evangelicals, 17% of all evangelicals would make a formal protest action if they knew a black person were to move in next to them. And among Southern Baptists, 20% would, would do so. How about just look at fidelity and marriage? And we, we know that, you know, at this point, the divorce rates are, 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 are ridiculous. And sadly, at this point in time, the evangelical divorce rate, and, and you've got to go through a lot of hoops to be identified as an evangelical in these surveys. The evangelical divorce rate is now at par with the general population divorce rate. And so Barna thought, ah, but maybe those divorces occurred before. Their, their born-again experience. So he went back and he studied that, and he found that 90% of the divorces among the evangelical community were after they had become born-again evangelical Christians. That's not all. Years ago, there, was a, there still is a very ambitious program called True Love Waits. And it's an idea of, of promoting teenage chastity and that you would practice delayed gratification, really holiness, and save yourself 
for marriage the way that God had actually intended. That the only time that you would become one flesh is after a, a, a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, and then they will become one flesh. Well, this is that idea where you would take a pledge, you'd put on a ring that you would pledge in this True Love Waits program. And since 1993, over 3 million people have taken this pledge. Now, Columbia and Yale were interested in this population of young evangelical men and women because they wanted to see, could this perhaps be a solution with the explosion of venereal diseases, of, of STDs that has become epidemic in America. You heard the stats earlier. And so they did a study, which they published about 10 years ago, Columbia and Yale did, and they followed 12,000 of these young Christian people that were so committed that they engaged in the True Love Waits program, which basically said they will save themselves until marriage. And they followed 12,000. It's one of the most comprehensive studies ever done. And at the end of it, when they, they presented their findings, they were able to determine through, through some really good research how many of those True Love Waits participants actually had sexual intercourse prior to their marriage. And, you ready for this? The percentage of them was not just 25%. But think of that. I mean, imagine like a committed, church-going, evangelical, born-again young person engages in the program. Not just 50%. Not just 75%. 88% of those young girls and young boys who became young men and young women, 88% of them had sex prior to their wedding day. And their incidence of sexually transmitted diseases was greater than the general population. And sadly, when the, the findings were brought by, by Columbia and Yale, all the Christian community could do was hang their head because we were not the solution that the government was hoping for, even though they put in all that money to study it, hoping that perhaps, perhaps the, the moral mores of, of Jesus through his community of faith would be a solution for the epidemic that grips America. And all it provided was more darkness. So I, I say this to say that we may be more twisted and perverse and crooked than we realize. We may want to argue, no, 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 my spine is straight. I got it on together. But in fact, we may need to have someone really put us in front of the mirror that is God's word to help us to really understand what it's going to take for us to really be straightened. You know, and as a result, some of the leading voices in evangelical Christianity have, uh, have lamented. For example, Michael Horton, who is a, a popular author, evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, sexually immoral, as the world in general. There's no shining like stars in that. A Barna survey, which saw how was the general population of America towards different groups. And so, for example, how many had a positive view of? And, and so they looked at how many have a positive view of clergy? 44%. So Obama has a higher positive rating than I do. Born again Christians, what general population? What's their view of 32% of the general population has a positive uh, attitude towards born again Christians. 
And evangelical Christians, 22% only. And when asked why, why, you know, this, this, I mean, is it because they're oppressing you? What is the reason? And it comes down to hypocrisy. There's just rampant hypocrisy. And of course, survey after survey shows us that there is a scandal that doesn't shed light, but instead just provides darkness. Doesn't provide a beacon of hope to help guide others into Jesus and into Jesus' words, but only more and more darkness. Barna, who did most of these surveys, uh, lamented, every day the church is becoming more like the world that it allegedly seeks to change. Wow, right? Hey, it's really good to be here this morning. I'm glad you're able to visit. <laughs> and so because of this warped and perverse darkness, all the more that as you're gathered here today, it's not in vain from the Apostle Paul's perspective. You're gathered here, not by accident. You're gathered here as the very hope that God needs to use to be able to bring light to a dark and perverse and crooked world. There is a light that has shone in the darkness. God has disrupted with such magnificent show of power and love with which the great love with which he loved us, he interrupted our lives and sent his own son to be a ransom for all of our hypocrisy. Amen. To be a guilt offering for all of our selfish indulgence. For all of the premarital sex. For all of the sexual infidelity. For all of the pornographic indulgence. For all of the lies. For all of the racism. For all of the materialism. God has intervened. There's more than sufficient hope that pierces through the dark and the darkness. And, and as, as we read of Jesus through Isaiah, behold, there's a great light. A great light has appeared. And we are meant to be representatives of that light. How is it that we end up being that? By holding to the word of life, this passage says. The, the, Paul writes earlier to the Corinthians about this gospel, about this word of life. And he says, you know, it is veiled. This gospel is veiled. that people aren't seeing it. But you know why? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't even see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And what we preach, not ourselves, but it's Jesus as Lord. And we're just servants for Jesus' sake. But God said, let light shine out of darkness. What did he do? He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What do we do about the veil? Paul says that once we turn to the Lord and turn from our selfish ways, when we humble out and really recognize that there's something bigger that needs to go on, when we turn from that, the veil is removed. And the gospel is brought into full view. And the power of it is able to guide us out of the darkness. And even more so, when we hold firmly to that word of God, we then become those very lights. Amen. If South Beach is going to have a light, it is going to be because we decide collectively, not just individualistically, collectively, one with another to help one another, reinforce one another, not with our own great insights, but through the word of life. That we will hold fast and really look for one another. That we are holding fast to this word of light. And, and to have a light 
that shines in the darkness. Now, it's really important that we do really hold fast to the preciousness that is the Word of God. Take a, take a look at, at this uh, recent survey. This is the percentage of Americans who read the Bible at least once a week. For years upon years, I could have taken this graph backwards all throughout the, the, the 1900s, and it would have remained somewhere between the 50 and, 46%, and 45% range. But then something has happened in the most recent of all years, as year after year, if we had shown this chart, you would have seen a ratcheting down year by year by year of people that... Now, guess how many Bibles have been sold? Five billion. Wow. Seven, seven billion people on earth. Five billion. No book comes close to it. Most bought, least read. And, and now, the percentage of Americans, 33%. And millennials, less than a quarter of millennials, even look at a Bible on a weekly basis. Even among those who are, are professing to be Christians. But not just the fact that you don't look at the Bible, but the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles that it teaches. They're not even asking about all the facts. Just the great principles of the Bible that are laid out. That's to, to, to no longer do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others before yourself. Do not I, 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 do unto others as you would help for them to, to do unto you. You know, the golden rule. And the percentage of people that in 2011 agreed with that, almost half. Today, just a third. Look at and the same thing, ratcheting, ratcheting, ratcheting down. But if the world around them is filled with Christians that are just as dark as everything else they see, then they can look at this and say, what good is it? As Gandhi said when he came across the Bible, I love this Jesus. He was in South Africa at the time. Where can I find these Christians that this Bible talks about having gathered? And as he tried in congregation after congregation and found nothing, he walked away disillusioned, thinking that, yes, I like your Jesus, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. If the Word of God is going to have its impact on South Beach, if the veil is going to be removed, it needs all of us to be those bright and shining lights. It needs us to take away the great excuse of, well, it must be just theoretical because everybody I know is just an hypocrite. I know that for me, I read the Bible all my life, but until I had a neighbor who was the real deal and lived it out and I couldn't escape him, because he was always hovering around. Sure, he needs to walk his dog right now. Right. But, but he was, oh, he, come on, Ed, you want to read the Bible? You read? Not with you, I don't. Because I knew what was going to happen. Because he was a blazing light. And once I sat with him, I couldn't say, well, you don't do this. Which was always what I said, even to priests all of my life. But you don't do this. And, and I knew I couldn't say to him. And I couldn't. And the minute that I was surrounded by people that were the real, it took away all my excuses. And then all I, all I could do was surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit because it was hitting me from every side. And there was no exit door at that point. Amen. You need to shut the exit doors with your life. Amen. We need to hold fast to the Word of God. And then we need to bring forth the Word of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it is time to shine. This area needs your bright and shining lights. It needs you desperately. It needs to, to hear the story after story. I love, you know, Mira Valencia. We, we, we know her, for those of you who are in our fellowship. 
And we know that while she was a student at ODU, she was continually getting trouble with the administration. Why? Because she always allowed homeless people into her dorm room to be able to take showers, be able to catch up, and be able to get meals together. Kirk Valencia, her, her husband, worked at a grocery store in Norfolk. Before there were like kind of, you know, Whole Foods type places, there was kind of a hoity-toity uh, kind of uh, elitist grocery store in the Ghent area. And Kirk was their checkout clerk. And he decided that he was going to share Jesus with every person that came through the line. And every person that came through, he somehow found a way of lettuce. Let us consider how Jesus can really make it. I, I, I don't even know how he did it, right? But, but after like a day or two of that, these kind of elitist customers call, with their entitlement, called back to the store manager saying, what is going on in your store? I didn't come to your store to get a gospel preached to me every single time. And then the store manager brought Kirk into the back and she said to him, you know, Kirk, um, you know, I've gotten like three complaints just today about all this preaching of the gospel that you're doing. Uh, Kirk, uh, it, it, this, is, this is really not going to go down well. And, and Kirk uh, said, well, you know what? I, um, here, here's what and he opened up his calendar. And he goes, these are the goals that I've set for myself for Jesus. Like this day, I'm going I'm to share with everybody. This day, I'm going to share with just the intimidating people in my life. This day, I'm just going to ask people if they know the Bible. This, and, and, and he laid this all out. And she's like, wow, that's very intentional, very deliberate. And, and she goes, you know what? I'd rather have you... As my clerk, than those women that, that complained, as my customers. And by the way, I also came back here to award you Employee of the Month. Congratulations. <laughs> but you know, those, those are just a, a couple little stories just from one family. Here's the beauty of this. As I look across right now, I get, ah, yes, ah, yes. I, I, I know story after story of how you have become lights. But now is the time, brothers and sisters, we need to burn more brightly than ever before. It is more, in, just, there is a, an urgency to it like we have never encountered before. It is time to hold fast all the more to the word of life, but it is also time to get out the word of life. Everything is heading into deeper and deeper darkness. If you're visiting with us, praise God. That, that you get to be part of what God has always meant for your life. You weren't meant to fade into the background. You weren't meant to, to get along and, and just kind of keep along. You were meant to be distinctive. Not that you were meant to be something special. Only in Christ are you special. But you were meant to really have a significance of what the meaning of life is. Don't let coming here be in vain. Let's bring this thing together. Let's do it for one another. Let's hold to the word of God together. Let's make sure that we're holding fast to the word of God. That we are uh, holding tight to the word of God with one another. And as we continue to shine, let me give you one final challenge here. I don't know how many of these stars I got to get through. I think I did one, two, three, three. I, got, I wanted to make sure you all felt special. So let me keep going. Because this is such a terrible challenge that I'm going to give you that I, I've, I've got to get to. I mean, this will be, you will groan. You will. You will groan because it is so biblical and it is so painful what is coming your way. Maybe you can say a silent prayer as I throw up 17 more stars. Oh, you're kidding me. Come on. Yes. Hey. Oh, wait until you clap. Wait a minute. Here's my challenge. 
This week, I mean, for an entire week, even though Paul says this, absolutely, I want you to do this this week. If you want to live a life with no entitlement, if you want to live a life only fueled by gratitude, if you want to live a life where you shine among people because you will be so different from everybody else in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, then I want you to do this for this entire week. And I want you to see how we did next week. Do not complain or argue about anything. Paul's in chains. The Philippians are in a famine. The Philippians are being persecuted. And they are not complaining or arguing. You guys ready for this? This will reshape the way you look at everything. And also, I think, really alert us to the degree to which we really hold on to entitlement. Because my goodness, complaints and arguing just kind of just flow out as though it's our righteous indignation just being expressed like Jesus. Hey, everything. No complaining or arguing about anything. And if you want to have a bonus, then that's what not to do. But here's what to do. With someone this week, hold out the Word of God. Ask them. Ask them if they would like to sit down and look at the Word of God. And with you, hold fast to the Word of God. That's what's going to make us straight. That'll keep us from being warped or, or crooked. That's what will take us out of darkness and make us the, the beaming light that we're meant to be. Amen. Thanks. Amen.